listening to Cleaning the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. This is part two of Widows, the Fatherless, and Worship. Oh, why? I know that sounds kind of kind of silly, maybe. Uh, of course, I'm taking that from the Wizard of Oz and lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. But we don't really make a connection between caring for the widows and the fatherless and worship. But as I discussed in the first part of this series, uh, based on James one twenty seven, pure and undefiled worship for our Father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. Uh, that word religion means uh, worship. And I went into a great bit of detail to uh, try and broaden uh, our understanding of what what I believe worship takes in, that worship is the big picture. But we've really made church, not the church as the, the church universal, but, but churches, individual churches, local church bodies, we've kind of made that the big picture of our lives. And we've plugged worship into that, what we would call a worship service, and that really becomes the way that we now define what worship is. It's not, not a written definition, but it's a practice definition. Uh, if you ask anyone, just quick, off the top of your head, uh, when I say worship, what comes to mind? And almost 10 out of 10 instances whoever you're asking that, whether it's an individual or a group, the, the, the words they will throw out, you know, singing, prayer, a sermon, an offering, all describe a worship service. But if you say, well, how do you know that's worship? I mean, what can you point to in the Bible that describes or labels our coming together uh, in the ways that we do on a Sunday morning for a worship service, that it it describes it that way. That That's the language that it uses. It, it describes that as worship. If you go on the internet, do a Google search on worship service in the Bible, uh, you, you might be surprised what comes up. And, and actually, uh, if you've never thought of worship or defined worship uh, outside of a, a worship service, then the explanations uh, for this might might seem in line with what you've come to, to believe and, and understand is worship. Uh, worship defined as a worship service. Uh, when I did a search, some of the explanations included Romans 12, 1, uh, being living in holy sacrifices, with, which is our spiritual service of worship, but it was really tying that to the idea of a, a worship service and what we do and everything that I looked up all uh, 
directs us to a worship service and what we do and and even questioning whether worship services today are really uh, of God or about God because of the, the types of things that occur in, in worship services today that, you know, modern music instead of hymns and being very uh, seeker-oriented rather than being true uh, to Scripture uh, when, it, when it comes to, to worship and the order of worship. And um, those things that are being talked about in there really have absolutely no biblical basis. In fact, what really calls into question uh, whether what we do in a worship service is really to God is based on what we do outside of that that God desires from us as worship. And what I believe is chief on that list is caring for the widows and the fatherless in their distress. You know, so it's the difference between uh, a worship service and the service of worship. Spiritual service of worship, if you will. And so that's why I, I kind of play on, I've played on, you know, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, with widows, the fatherless, and worship, oh why? Why is that worship? Why is Why does God consider that to be pure and undefiled worship? And I drew the correlation between uh, God's stated purpose for Adam after he creates him and says it's to dress and keep the garden. Uh, in the NIV, it says to work it, uh, to keep it, to maintain the order of it. Uh, but that idea of to work it or dress it, the Hebrew word abad essentially means servant, but servant as in the context of worship. Adam is a servant. And it's interesting because when, when the fall occurs, uh, when Eve becomes deceived and then she becomes the deceiver of Adam, God says in Genesis 3, uh, beginning with verse 22, And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Then in verse 23, it says, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. The word work used here has also been translated uh, from the word abad that is used with Adam's stated purpose by God to to dress and keep the garden, to work it and to, to keep the garden. And it's really tied to the idea of being a servant, to serve, uh, a worshiper. And here, what a contrast this is with Adam in the garden and of course then Eve, that everything they do, their thoughts are pure, their actions are pure, they don't even have to think 
about what they're doing. It is just automatically their their entire being is is moment my moment being offered up to God through their their words, their their speech and their actions. Now, this says that they have to work the ground, a ground that has now been cursed. Worship, pure and undefiled worship, unblemished worship, the way God intended for it to be, is now completely compromised. And it is the tension from that moment forward when they are taken out of the garden they are divided between themselves their selfishness their desire to uh, self-worship and to worship God uh, that that is the tension that is the struggle and whereas worship was easy before it was in a perfect setting you know perfect temperature no flies or mosquitoes or or uh lions and tigers and bears oh my um now worship like the ground itself that has been cursed uh it's not just uh, earning a living uh, tilling the soil producing uh Food sustenance is by the sweat of the brow, but um, worship is by the sweat of the brow. It it still uh, works. Working that idea is still uh, tied to worship, and works working still meant to be understood as deeds or offerings in worship of God unto God. I also talked about in the first part of this series uh, being able to look at, at James 127. It's obviously not talking about a worship service. Uh, it says to visit them. And unless all the widows and fatherless, as I said in the last um, episode, the first part of this series, unless all the widows and fatherless in their distress show up on Sunday morning, for the worship service, uh, we have to go visit them. So there, you can draw a line right from uh, the Garden, uh, Genesis 2.15, because that's the precedent for worship. That's what worship was originally supposed to look like, supposed to be. We can draw it, this line directly to James 1.27. And the second part of Genesis 2.15 um, to keep the garden uh, is to maintain the order of to hedge about, to protect, to not let anything in. And we know deception did enter into the garden. That Eve was tempted first and then she became the deceiver of Adam. So that word to keep um, is almost identical to the word uh, 
to keep in James 127, the second part, in order to keep from being polluted by the world. Um, that, that idea of to keep here is so similar to this uh, original purpose for Adam, uh, what, what worship was, what it was meant to be, what it was meant to look like. And it, it, it fits here in James 1.27 for us because God sends Jesus to undo what was caused by Adam and Eve, to, to take away our shame, to, to the cherubim and the flaming sword that are blocking the way back into paradise. Uh, Jesus has come to be the men, means for us, offering up his life so that we can return to this setting, and that's what John 3.16 is. For God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son to visit us in our distress, in our condition uh, of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness, because that's what Jesus takes away from us. Uh, when we accept the gospel, we are considered to be betrothed to Jesus, which, according to Jewish tradition, uh, to be betrothed is to be considered already married. You remember that uh, before Joseph and Mary were married, had the wedding ceremony, uh, had not taken place yet. Uh, they were engaged, so to speak, but when he finds out that, that she's pregnant, he plans to uh, quietly divorce her. How can he be able to divorce his wife, Mary, or his betrothed, Mary, if they are not considered to already be married? Uh, so, when we accept Jesus, he takes away this condition from us for being uh, spiritually uh, widowed and as well as orphaned or, or fatherless. The, the, when we accept his proposal of marriage, Jesus' proposal of marriage, which is what we call the gospel, we are considered to already be married to him, and we are immediately adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. The problem is, of course, once we become betrothed to Jesus and are like Eve and our vulnerability for being deceived, that's what the first part of James chapter 1 is calling our attention to, is that, that very thing, not only for being deceived, but also for deceiving ourselves. In uh, verse 22 and then in verse 26, it, it tells us, uh, not to deceive ourselves. Um, in verse 22, the, the idea is um, not, to be, not to deceive ourselves through false reasoning. Um, so I, I don't know whether, whether that's, if you can make that connection or not, but I want to talk to move forward, uh, to, to break James 1.27 down more. Um, to, to show that this is a what I like to call a bride passage. Uh, uh, it's an instruction from the bridegroom to his bride, which is us, the church. And I spent, uh, I did a five-part 
series uh, proving that Jesus came to redeem a bride by taking those passages in, in Genesis that describe the creation of Eve through Adam and, and making the New Testament uh, correlations, the, the verses, the circumstances that, that correlate with Jesus uh, that, that really, I think, present a pretty airtight case that Jesus came to redeem a bride. So if what I'm saying about Genesis 2.15 being able to overlay it with James one twenty seven, then then there that verse and and what what else we can pull from that verse uh, should um, testify to this, uh, affirm this. Now maybe if I put it. Uh, in this context, when, when it's talking about in James, uh, in, beginning with verse 22, not merely listen to the word and deceive, so deceive ourselves, but do what it says, just like Jesus said to the religious leaders, uh, the people should do as you say and not as you do. Um, try looking at, at these passages that follow this, uh, but inserting Jesus. Anyone that, that listens to the word but doesn't do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. That's what we do with Jesus. We accept Jesus. We recognize him. We, we accept his proposal of marriage. We become betrothed to him. But then we forget what he looks like. We forget about his life leading up to his death, burial, and resurrection. And hopefully this next word in this study in James 1.27 will make this even more clear. It's the word undefiled. This word, uh, the Greek word that's translated as the word undefiled, is only used four times uh, in the New Testament. And each one of them is, is so significant to uh, describing, defining, um, giving us hope in the promise that we have in Jesus to be with him for eternity. Uh, it is this one word that has uh, led me to describe uh, this passage. James 1.27 is a bride passage or uh, a a bridegroom instruction passage for his bride. And as, as I, I talked about earlier in this episode, also um, God's stated purpose for Adam to uh, dress and keep the garden. Um, this really is, because I've I really believe you can overlay these these two passages um, with Adam's purpose. So, so this really James is really saying to us what our purpose is as believers, as the betrothed of Jesus. The first time this word undefiled appears is in Hebrews chapter seven, verse twenty-six. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. Just the fact that this is in, in the book of Hebrews, and I'm, I'm not going to go into this too much, but, but I said in the last episode, I talked about the fact that Hebrews was written to be Christianity 101 for the early Jewish converts in the same way that Ephesians was written for the early Gentile converts or Christianity 101 for them. And in this chapter 7, uh, in the passages that, that, that precede this verse, uh, it, it's establishing Jesus' priesthood, that it is not like the first high priesthood that was established. Uh, those priests were uh, born sinful, and when they died, their, their priesthood ended, and a new high priest had to be chosen. Jesus, who was born without sin, his high priesthood uh, is an eternal one, an everlasting one, based on Genesis 14 uh, and Melchizedek, who was a high priest and was said to have no beginning and no end. So that's the precedent for Jesus's high priesthood, an eternal one. And it says in this passage, in verse 27, that uh, Jesus had to be undefiled. He had to be without sin in order to be the atoning sacrifice, the offering uh, for all mankind. Uh, to reverse what Adam and Eve brought into the world through their sin. So that's first. The establishment of Jesus as Savior as husband and bridegroom because he was sinless. He was undefiled. The second time the word undefiled is used is also in Hebrews, but in chapter 13, verse 4. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And what's difficult about this is that whenever we read something about marriage, we immediately think about our, our physical, earthly marriages. But as I talked about in episode uh, 5, um, that under the new covenant, when, whenever we, we find uh, instructions about earthly marriage, it's only meant to point us to Jesus and the fact that we are in a marriage relationship with Jesus as his bride, uh, as the church. And that's what is being talked about here. It's talking about uh, us in our relationship to Jesus, talking about fornicate, being for fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. He will judge them because he's talking about our corporate relationship with him, that adultery and idolatry are the same thing. They are synonymous. And that is far, far worse for, for us to be in an adulterous relationship with the world. So we've gone from this first instance where it establishes that Jesus is undefiled, and that's why he can be our savior, our bridegroom, our husband, uh, to be the offering to reverse what Adam and Eve uh, brought on mankind. Now it's talking about 
what our relationship with Jesus is likened to. It, it's a marriage. And in our marriage, we are to be undefiled in that relationship, to be faithful. And, and this, this is confirmed, again, in 2 Corinthians 11, uh, verse 2, what Paul says, I have betrothed you to one husband. I desire that you be pure as a virgin being betrothed to, to Jesus and not deceive as Eve was, lest our minds be led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. And of course, the third instance is in James 1.27. Pure and undefiled worship in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress in order to keep ourselves from being stained or polluted by the world, in order to keep from living in an adulterous relationship with the world. So now, Jesus has been established as being undefiled. He desires us in our marriage to him that we be kept pure as a virgin. And now it's telling us how, how we keep our purity, how we remain undefiled through undefiled worship. Our lives are supposed as living and holy sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship, is to, to devote ourselves uh, as priority specifically to the care of the widows and the fatherless in their distress. That is the order that we are to maintain, to, to keep... Uh, a hedge of protection around to prevent deception from entering into this. And finally, in the fourth instance, where this word undefiled is used, it, it is talking about what lies ahead of us when we are no longer earthbound uh, at the end of this age, when we are joined with Jesus at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Uh, what we are looking forward to, uh, and it's in 1 Peter, beginning with uh, chapter 1, uh, starting with verse 3 and ending with verse 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which is the gospel. That's what the good news of the gospel is in order to obtain an inheritance, storing our treasures in heaven, which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, for us. It is the guarantee that accepting Jesus, our undefiled Savior, Bridegroom, we are to remain faithful, to be pure as a virgin, as Paul says, and in order for us to be that condition, our worship has to be pure and undefiled, because what awaits us is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and will never fade away. So our worship 
it's either pure and undefiled or it is impure and defiled. And either way, we will either be heading towards a critical mass of pure and undefiled worship or a reaching a critical mass of impure and defiled worship. One, leading to restoration, the hope that we have in Jesus and an inheritance imperishable and undefiled that will not fade away, or we will go the other way, reaching a critical mass of impure and defiled worship leading to desolation. And in the Old Testament, the word for widow is desolate. Adam and Eve's condition outside of the garden is that of desolation. In Zechariah 7, when God calls attention to the fact that they have overlooked the widows and the fatherless, uh, the oppressed, um, the condition of the land becomes that of desolation. Now, maybe you think that is really a stretch, but let me, I've, I've talked about this before, brought this example up uh, before, but in Mark 12, uh, beginning with verse 38, remember Jesus is in the, the temple, this is right at the end of his ministry, so anything coming up at the end of his ministry, I think we have to pay particular attention to. Uh, it's it's kind of I don't know whether you've ever thought about this before, but you know Jesus is is reviewing for his disciples what's really important, what he really wants to stand out because it's getting close to the time where he will be crucified, and after he's resurrected, you know he leaves, he ascends into heaven, and the disciples become the front line of defense, so to speak. Uh, so this is kind of cramming for finals time. Jesus, uh, as he taught, he said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. Verse 40, They devour widows' houses. And for a show, make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. Where does that come from? I mean, just, you know, out of nowhere. He suddenly says, they devour the widow's houses. You know, and it's right after this that, that he sits down opposite the place where the offerings were, were being put in, the treasury. And he points out the widow, you know, like one of the widows whose houses is being devoured. Her faith is so great that she is able to give all the money she has, which is really nothing. Two very small copper coins, it says, but it's about her faith. Her trust, her dependence on God is so deep, so profound that she can give all the money that she has, but she knows God will care for her as opposed to those who who have means and they're giving in uh, in effect in essence um, out of their surplus and because where our 
treasure is, that's where our hearts will also be. Um, you know, when when we only give out of our surplus, or sometimes some people are able to give out of the surplus of their surplus, we only give out of the surplus of every other area of our lives. Now, a little bit later on uh, in chapter 13, uh, you remember... Um, Jesus comes out of the temple after he talks about the widow giving all that she has. And uh, one of the disciples turns to him and says, Wow, look at the massive stones of, of this building, the temple. And uh, look at these magnificent buildings. And, and Jesus says, you know, a time's coming when uh, this is all going to be reduced to rubble. Uh, this system is is going to be no more. The the first covenant, the covenant under the law, will be ruled null and void. Uh, that disciple was looking at the outward success or appearance of of Israel, of of the faith, uh, the Jewish faith, and it was based on just appearance. But Jesus has, has just revealed to his disciples, and they, they apparently didn't understand it, or at least this disciple didn't understand, that he was really, when he says that, that they devoured the widow's houses, and then he points out who this widow is, and uh, who, uh, as compared with, with everybody else giving out of their surplus, what, he, what he's really presenting to them and to us is she represents uh, the, the, the church that he came for, and they represent uh, the church, the, the yeast of the, the Pharisees. It only takes a little yeast to leaven the whole batch. They, they represent uh, the leadership, this leadership that he has just described who devour the widows' houses. Now, a little bit further on, they, he, he, he's talking about terrible things to come. And uh, some of his disciples, want, they, go, they go over and sit on the Mount of Olives right across from the temple, and they want to know, well, how, how do we know when this is going to happen? And Jesus says in uh, Mark 13, 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judah flee to the mountains. Now, this is not a one-time occurrence, this abomination that, that causes desolation. Abomination just merely means idolatry, and idolatry is the same thing as adultery. Um, I just talked about Zechariah 7 uh, when God called out uh, to Israel and said, don't oppress the widows and the fatherless and the strangers in the land. Uh, practice uh, true justice and, and mercy and they wouldn't listen to him. So when they cried out to him, he wouldn't uh, listen to them. And so he scatters them in a whirlwind and it said, and this is the land flowing with milk and honey, and it, and it said no one could uh, go to and fro. And it, it ends with, this is how they, Israel, the Jews, 
they made the pleasant land a desolate place. So, in effect, the abomination that causes desolation uh, was standing where it should not, and it shouldn't stand in the church, in, in the center of our faith. And the this word desolation, um, the root word it comes from, uh, it's in terms of its its biblical usage, one of uh, one of its meanings or context is to despoil one, to strip her of her treasures. Remember what Jesus just says about. Uh, the scribes, the leaders. He, he also says the same thing in the seven woes. He says, they devour the houses of the widows. They strip her of her treasure. And as I said previously, the abomination that causes desolation uh, has is not just a one-time occurrence. It, it it happened many times uh, throughout Israel's history. Um, some scholars have interpreted uh, this, what Jesus is saying here, to mean some future date, uh, you know, end times kind of eschatology. But in, in two of the Gospels, in, in Matthew and in Mark, it Jesus uses this, this terminology or, or expresses it as when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it should not, you should flee. But in, in Luke, in, in the uh, a third account of this same type of thing, the same discussion uh, that Jesus is having with his disciples in chapter 21, verse 20, uh, he says, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. The, the spiritual condition of Israel when Jesus came was that for the abomination that causes desolation to be standing where it should not, in, in, the, in the center of their faith. They were living in such an adulterous relationship with the world. They had forgotten what was most important to God in terms of justice and mercy, caring for those such as the widows and the fatherless, and they didn't even know that God had literally left the house. He wasn't there. He wasn't in the temple. Uh, you realize the, the how few instances are recorded where Jesus is actually in the temple? Uh, I mean, one of them is when he goes in and he turns over uh, the money changers' tables. Um, Luke chapter 21, verse 20 occurs 40 years later in 70 AD when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and the Jewish diaspora began. Uh, 
Um, so even though in, on, a, on a spiritual plane, the abomination of desolation was, was standing where it should not in the holy place, um, it was not manifested on earth for another 40 years. So, taking this into consideration, uh, what, what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, uh, revealing to them the, the, the condition of the church based on characteristics of its, uh, its leadership, uh, the abomination that causes desolation, um, standing where it shouldn't in the holy place, um, I know we, we think about abomination or, or, or idolatry. We think about that worshiping other gods, but, but not to care for those such as the widows and the fatherless. What James one twenty seven is saying here, that is idolatry, which is the same thing as adultery. And the last part of this passage uh, discussed in, in the, the part one of this, this series, you know, presents that. Um, the last part, um, in order to keep oneself from being polluted by the world, in order to keep from committing adultery, in order to keep at the forefront of our faith and our lives what Jesus has done for us, that he has taken away our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness. Uh, he, he's removed uh, our not being able to be comforted, uh, being uh, desolate, uh, being, being orphaned, that idea. And um, look at going from what Jesus says to, to his uh, disciples uh, in three of the Gospels, uh, pointing out uh, that the, the leadership devours the, the houses of the widows, uh, takes their treasure away from them. Uh, his last act on the cross in John chapter 19 verse 26 and, and this is the only gospel this is recorded in uh, but it's, it's the last thing that it, it says he does uh, before his last act before he, he gives up uh, the ghost. When Jesus saw his mother there, and remember, his mother is a widow, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And, and to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took him into her home. Jesus' very last act on the cross is an act of pure and undefiled worship. Making provision for his widowed mother. Now Jesus who has been tortured and he is almost at the point of death makes provision for his widowed mother who is obviously in distress. I mean a distress that I don't think any of us can even imagine uh, what, what she is, is witnessing there. And he makes provision for her an act of pure and undefiled worship. And then there are two accounts in Acts, one in chapter 5 and the other in chapter 6, 
that are kind of critical mass moments, one that that precedes the other, uh, that that happens with the disciples, uh, where deception tries to enter in, and it's with Ananias and Sapphira, and and people selling what they have, uh, selling their possessions, so that everyone has uh, their they have their needs met. No one does without. And so Ananias and Sapphira, they sell some property and they bring the money in and they said, this is all the money we got. And, and Peter knows this isn't true because God has revealed it to him. And they are both struck dead. Um, that is a picture of what happened in the Garden of Eden with, with Adam and Eve when, when the serpent came in to deceive. Only the disciples are not deceived. They are the front line of defense, and this is is uh, first big attempt by uh, by Satan, by the enemy, to try and come in and deceive and and disrupt uh, this this brand new uh, church that that is is just barely in its infancy. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, we have this picture again. And it's another, what I I call, uh, critical mass moment. Uh, You know, we have seen with Israel, with Jesus, pointing out that the leadership devoured the houses of the widows, uh, Israel had already at that at that point the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, they were already like the widow, uh, bereft, desolate. Um, they already were that. Uh, the abomination of desolation was was already standing uh, where it should not. And so here in in Acts six, um, where it was a critical mass. Uh, for impure and defiled worship had already been reached in Israel uh, in this new, brand new infant church. Um, this problem arises where minority Greek widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. The, the majority Greek, I mean Hebrew widows, Hebraic widows, they were being taken care of, but, you know, the minority faction were being overlooked. And so the the apostles stopped what they were doing. They said it does not please us at this time to uh, personally take care of this need, this immediate need, but, but also the ongoing need. Uh, we feel that we need to devote ourselves right now to, to preaching and teaching and, and prayer. It, it This is not a command. Uh, they're not saying this uh, as this is for all times what we should do, um, which in some ways that is exactly how that has been interpreted uh, by, by many denominations today. Um, many pastors today uh, believe that, that they likewise are to almost exclusively devote themselves to, to preaching and teaching and prayer, and that there are others 
that are to to step in and relieve them so that they can devote themselves to this and and if you uh, you are coming from kind of a um, the perspective of uh, ruling bodies that have uh, deacons and elders or just uh, deacons with a pastor um, that's their function to to relieve the pastor so that he can devote himself to this and there's there's really no no uh, nothing that backs this this interpretation up uh, and in fact I think it's because um, this passage is really not understood uh, in terms of, of what it's it's actually presenting to us and that you can you can draw a line from Jesus saying they devoured the widows houses to to uh, which is gross impure and defiled worship and to Jesus on the cross uh, at, at as his last act making provision for his widowed mother uh, an act of pure and undefiled worship and uh, then this opportunity with these Greek minority widows who, who are not being fed and the, the apostles stop uh, they say, uh, go out among you and choose seven filled, who are full of wisdom and filled with the, the Spirit. And um, they lay hands on them. Uh, they commission them, in effect. They pray over them, not to just meet this need once, uh, but, but to, they give them authority and they, they give them resources to, to make certain that these widows are cared for on an ongoing basis. And of course, th- this these first seven verses are the introduction to Stephen, the life of Stephen, the first martyr, uh, the only one that Scripture records that Jesus stood up in, in heaven for. When we look at James one twenty seven in this context, and especially look, looking at this word undefiled, um, and right before it, it says, don't deceive yourself. Your religion is worthless. Your faith is worthless. This is your purpose. Just like Adam's purpose was to, to, to work the garden, to keep the garden, to, to preserve the order of, to, to hedge about, to keep deception from entering in. That's what James 1.27 is saying. And, and that's why. It is pure and undefiled worship because this is what our purpose really is. And Jesus himself models this for us, demonstrates this for us. And so do his apostles in Acts chapter 6. This is such a a powerfully significant moment. Uh, And that's why I say it is a critical mass moment. At that point, things could have gone either way. They could have gone down a path that would eventually uh, reach a, a critical mass of impure and defiled worship or one that continued on as pure and undefiled worship, which ultimately leads to restoration. And our ultimate restoration is when we are with Jesus in the New Jerusalem as his betrothed at the marriage feast the wedding of the Lamb. The next word in this passage I want to take a look at is the word visit. 
as in visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress. Uh, Dr. Amy Sherman, uh, in a devotional that she wrote a number of years ago called Sharing God's Heart for the Poor, Meditations for Worship, Prayer, and Service. And of the 17 uh, devotions uh, that she includes in this book, two of them are on James 127 and the specific word visit. In her first uh, devotion on this passage in the word to visit, uh, she ties it to 1 Samuel 2.21 when uh, God visits Hannah who, who is barren, unable to have children, and God enables her to have five children. Uh, here in this example, when God visits her, uh, she conceives new life. God breathes life into Hannah. The next example she gives is in, uh, in the New Testament, uh, Luke chapter 7, verse 16, when Jesus and his disciples, they're in the town of Nain, and they come across a widow who has lost her, her son, who's a young man, and Jesus is moved with compassion and he tells her not to cry. Uh, he tells the young man uh, who's dead to get up. And the coffin opens up, and uh, of course everyone is filled with awe. And the crowd starts praising God. And they say, the crowd actually says, Surely God has visited us. Surely God has visited us. They knew, this is a quote, uh, by her. They knew God had visited them because life was imparted to the dead. God, again, an example of God through visitation imparts life, breathes life into. In her second uh, devotion on James 1.27 and the word visit, Dr. Sherman connects this this word visit in scripture to what God does in Exodus chapter 3 verse 7 uh, for the Israelites who are in captivity uh, enslaved by the Egyptians and God says that he will come down and rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians uh, he, he visits them and through his visiting them in bondage he delivers them not only out of the hands of the Egyptians, but out of the land of Egypt. So visitation is also tied to deliverance. And finally, along these same lines, but, but in the New Testament, in Luke uh, chapter 1, uh, beginning with verse 67, uh, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, it says that he was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to prophesy. And in verse 68, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited his people to redeem them. Visit his people to redeem them. So you get 
uh, both in, in this, this passage as well as the passages uh, in Exodus about God visiting his people and delivering them out of the hands of the Egyptians and out of the land of Egypt that when God visits us, that's what occurs. Deliverance, redemption, and as we read uh, concerning Hannah and the widow in Nain who lost her son, uh, it's also God breathing life into uh, that. All of that is is packed into this word visit in the idea of visiting widows in their distress, and likewise the fatherless. The proof of the pudding for this. I know that's kind of an archaic term. But again, in Acts chapter 6, verse 1 through 7, uh, we, we actually see this recorded in Scripture um, when some widows who are hungry, minority widows who are hungry and being left out of the daily distribution of food, um, seven are chosen who are full of the Spirit and wisdom, one of these being uh, Stephen. In fact, these passages could be said to be the introduction to Stephen for us. Uh, It says in verse 2, so the twelve, the disciples, the apostles, summoned the congregation together and said it's not desirable, which just literally means it does not please us at this time for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. That word select, that is the same word that's translated as the word visit in James 1.27, and this idea of breathing life into and Uh, deliverance and redemption, which is what Jesus does for what he came to do to deliver, redeem, and restore us. And and pure and undefiled worship, that's what it leads to. That's what it builds to. Uh, A critical mass of pure and undefiled worship leads to restoration. And Look at the outcome after this is done, after they choose the seven. And they don't just say, okay, guys, go feed these ladies. They lay hands on them and they pray over them. They commission them to do this, not just this one time, but they give them authority as well as the means to to ensure that these widows are cared for on an ongoing basis. And listen to what verse 7 says. It says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, which that is the Great Commission. Go into all the world and make disciples. And it says that even a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Having said all of this, why the widows and the fatherless. Why is this considered by God to be pure and undefiled worship? Why does this uh, demonstrate or reveal um, us as Christ's bride to be a faithful bride, uh, to be that bride that, that God desires us to be, the bride that, that Paul 
describes us uh, as being uh, to be pure as a virgin, uh, to keep the wedding bed, the marriage bed undefiled, um, that we are looking towards an undefiled reward, inheritance. Um, why the widows and the fatherless? First of all, and, and I know uh, this has been covered in, in previous episodes, uh, but it is so much what widow bride marriage theology is. Uh, it, the Bible defines a widow as, as a woman who's essentially uh, bereft of a husband. She's, she's alone. Uh, in, in the New Testament, that's, that's how she's defined, bereft. In the Old Testament, it's this idea of for being desolate. Uh, but there is no uh, circumstance ascribed to to this condition. It is it is widows are defined or women defined are defined as widows by the condition uh, for being alone or being bereft uh, of a husband. Um, so whether uh, she is uh, divorced, uh, abandoned. Her husband might be in prison. He might be in a nursing home. He might be completely disabled. Uh, or as we commonly think of, of a widow, her husband has died. All of those in God's eyes qualify uh, for being widows. And in the case of, of younger women uh, who we refer to today as single moms, they should be seen by us, defined by us as being scriptural widows and their children fatherless. So I, to prove this, uh, you have to go back to, to the Garden of Eden, the, the fall of Adam and Eve uh, because of their sin and their being driven out of the garden. Uh, that, that word drove out uh, the man. One of its meanings is divorced. Adam and Eve, the two as one in a marriage relationship with God, commit an act of self-worship when they ate fruit only meant for God. Um, they suddenly realized they were naked, they were filled with shame, and they tried to cover over that shame. Uh, because of their adultery slash idolatry, God divorces them. They become the first condition of widowhood uh, as well as their setting, uh, their, which is one of desolation, complete desolation compared to, to the Garden of Eden. But even the best there is on this earth is a desolate place by comparison to, to paradise, a, a place where sin has not entered in. They are the first condition of widowhood, but with the promise from God to send a Savior, uh, the Messiah, who will also be husband and bridegroom to deliver, redeem, and restore us. And that's what Jesus does for us when we accept his proposal of marriage. He takes away our condition of spiritual widowhood uh, 
as well as uh, for being fatherless because we cannot have a relationship with our Heavenly Father except through Jesus. As soon as we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, uh, we are considered at that very moment to be married, already married to Him, and we are instantly adopted into our Heavenly Father's family as His children, as co-heirs with Christ. And as far as the fatherless, uh, if, if you look at John chapter 14, verse 18, uh, when Jesus tells his disciples uh, that he's going away and they're, you know, they're really concerned about this. And he says, I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you. And right after he says this, he tells them in the next verse that he's going away and they will see him no more. Uh, but what Jesus is literally telling them is not to worry that that he's going away because he promises that he will not leave them bereft. The word in the Greek is actually uh, orphanos. So it, it makes sense that in a number of translations, uh, this word that's been translated in the King James as the word comfortless uh, is usually translated as the word uh, orphans. But uh, in some translations, it's also translated as the word fatherless as well as desolate. So, which is, is really saying, depending on the translation, five different things. Orphans, comfortless, the fatherless, the bereaved, and desolate. Its definition can be both speaking of someone who is bereft of a father or of both parents or those who are bereft of a teacher, a guide, a guardian. Um, so it's not just speaking about those who, who don't have a father. But what it is speaking of on, on a figuratively or symbolically uh, to the disciples uh, in this instance and ultimately to us is that God wants to be our father. And he and Jesus is promising us, promising them at that time and promising us that he will not leave us desolate, uh, comfortless, uh, as, as orphans, or the fatherless. So, that word that's in John 14, 18, is only used in one other instance in the entire New Testament. And guess where it is. James one twenty seven, where it says that pure and undefiled worship is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. That's the only other instance where this, this word uh, that can mean 
bereft, desolate, comfortless, fatherless, or orphaned uh, is used. If we apply this to, to Jesus and what God says to us in John 3.16, for God so loved the world he sent his only begotten son and whomsoever shall believe in him will not perish but have life everlasting. That is a picture on a spiritual plane for us in the condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherless. In our distress for being spiritually widowed and fatherless, the condition that we inherit from Adam and Eve because of their original sin, God sends Jesus to breathe life in us by giving up his life, offering up his life and defeating death and being resurrected on the third day and ascending into heaven. God sends him to, for the purpose of delivering us, redeeming us, and ultimately restoring us. And that is widow, bride, marriage theology. When we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage, uh, we are redeemed. We are under the new covenant of grace. We are given safe passage out of this world, out of this life, uh, defeating death with the guarantee of being fully restored with him for all eternity. Based on everything that has been covered about James 1.27 and putting it in the context of worship, but not just just worship alone, but, but worship that God considers to be pure and undefiled worship, and, and tying that to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, that he's betrothed us to one husband, and that he desires for us to be pure as a virgin and not deceived by Eve was by the serpent. Can you see how James 1.27 really is our litmus test, the litmus test that, that God has given to us uh, through James uh, in in this book, the book of James to begin with, but, but even just with this one single passage that the entirety of Scripture is contained in here from beginning to end, the fall, our need for Jesus uh, because of our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness, and that caring for the widows and the fatherless because that's our condition apart from Jesus. And when we don't take care of the physically widowed and fatherless, which, you know, they represent uh, the, the fall itself, uh, what our spiritual condition became because of Adam and Eve's idolatry slash adultery. So the reason that we become polluted by the world when we do not maintain or keep this order 
that God has prescribed for us is it is literally saying to both Jesus and God our Father who sent Jesus to us to take this, these conditions away from us that we have forgotten what you have done on our behalf. That's literally what this passage is telling us. When we don't take care of, minister to, uh, provide uh, all the things that, that are needed in this very vulnerable, bereft, comfortless condition that they are in, which is the same one that we were in before we accepted Jesus' proposal of marriage. So not to fulfill this doesn't mean that we have lost our salvation, but what it means is that we have lost sight of who Jesus is, the model of Jesus that we are to become and follow in this life, to have the right Jesus of salvation, but the entirely wrong Jesus for living it out. And it has come about because of false reasoning. It has come about through self-deception, but through self-deception, then we then become part of a larger body of deception that perpetuates that deception. And so there will be consequences for this. As I said, if pure and undefiled religion leads to restoration, then impure and defiled worship or religion leads to desolation. And I believe with all my heart today, we are so far down the road as a church for reaching a critical mass. In fact, I think we may have already achieved that. We have already reached that, that critical mass of impure and defiled worship, that the abomination of desolation is now standing where it should not. And the only place it shouldn't stand is in the church because the command that was given to Adam not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil and the purpose that God had stated that he was to dress and keep the garden, that this passage in James is in effect a, a similar warning uh, and, and command um, that to dress and keep the garden, if you apply it to James one twenty seven, to dress it is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress, uh, and to keep it is to preserve the order of this. Now let me try and make this applicable to our lives uh, here and now, today. And I'm an American, and uh, so I'm going to talk about this in terms of America, but I believe it's it's true elsewhere because I, I believe the, the Western church, the, the church in America, especially what we would call the evangelical church, has the the greatest influence on the 
church around the world, especially in um, developing and, and emerging countries. Uh, but this this statistics from a couple of years ago, um, in 2014, there were approximately 2.2 million men in either state or, or federal prisons, and that's out of a total population of 318.9 million people. Uh, of this number, African-American men made up about 37% of those incarcerated, and it is the general consensus is that the majority of, of those men in prison today come from single parent families and with the single parent being a mother. And at the same time, in the same year, 70.6% uh, of Americans claim to, to either be Protestants or Catholics. Now, what, what's the big deal about this? Well, uh, these single-parent families of, of, of these men who have been incarcerated um, have never been identified or defined by us as believers, as Christ's betrothed, to be legitimate widows based on Scripture and their children to legitimately be uh, characterized according to scripture as the fatherless. Uh, if, if you want to break this down just into uh, the cost to society based on our, as the church, neglect of these younger widows and their children, if we add in all the cost uh, for welfare, for law enforcement, for uh, the court systems that have to process uh, all of these cases, and then the uh, the prisons that that house uh, these fatherless children that we, as God's people, have. Basically, it may not be a an actual conscious, literal refusal to care for them. Um, those outside of our church, but but we we neglect them equally uh, within our church walls. But think about the cost to us as a society for the consequences uh, that we have failed to address their care, uh, to visit them, so to speak, in their distress. When Jesus came to us in our distress as spiritual widows and orphans. Can you see the connection there? Is this starting to make sense what the consequences are for us as a society? You know, in America we have a tremendous uh, gang problem, gang violence, a lot of, of gang murders going on and the city where I live is certainly no exception. It's, it's been a, uh, taken years uh, trying to come up with strategies to, to bring down the murder rate. And not talking about a lot of folks, uh, probably a hundred or less, and even uh, less than that, uh, actual gang members who are, are committing these murders. 
but these gang members uh, predominantly come from single-parent families, uh, a mom at home, a single mom who is a widow, according to Scripture and in God's eyes. And, and this, this gang member is, is a fatherless child, according to Scripture. So just just in the city where I live, Chattanooga, Tennessee, a hundred or less uh, gang members causing the majority of the problems, and even less than that, committing the murders. Um, where are we as God's people? Where are we as the church? Why have we so uh, for, forgotten what Jesus has done on our behalf that that we have? looked at the mirror we we have heard heard the words the word we've heard jesus we've accepted jesus and then we've forgotten what he looks like when it comes to being doers of the word doers of the word means being servants of the word servants of jesus and we have obviously deceived ourselves we uh, through false reasoning and we really have nowhere else to point the finger except at ourselves this is our responsibility this mandate is has been given to us as god's people no one else it's our responsibility uh, it it is our purpose if we overlay God's purpose for Adam to dress and keep the garden with James 1.27. Uh, what James is stating here is our purpose, to care for the widows and the fatherless in order to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. And that's not just us individually. That, that is us corporately. I want to conclude this by uh, reading... 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, uh, which is, is really a, a correlating passage to the last part of James 1.27. It says, Anyone who does not provide for their relatives, and especially for their own household, has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. In the context that, that this is being written, uh, it's talking about the care of widows in the family, a widowed mother, a grandmother, a, an aunt, or a sister, and which means if it is a younger widow that, that we are responsible for helping out with the care of her children. And if we don't, we have denied the faith and are worse than unbelievers. We know that Timothy is a pastoral book, uh, it, it talks about uh, different offices, especially um, the office of overseer or elder and deacon. Uh, so this, this is not just talking to us as individuals. It is talking to us corporately. So anyone, whether an individual or a church, who does not provide for their relatives, for their families, their, their immediate family as well as their extended family, has 
denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. All we have to do is, is just look at, at the incarceration statistics uh, for all of the, the, the fatherless, especially men who were in prison today, who, who were raised by uh, their, their mothers, sing, who were single mothers, who, who were, were young widows. And, and where, where are we? Where were we? And where are we now? But instead, we choose to point the finger of blame externally to, to all of those external uh, forces that, that we have uh, no control over, but we are trying now to seize control of them uh, in order to, to fix our worlds, to preserve and protect uh, our faith worlds, rather than than pursuing God's order of things. We, we have chosen the world's order, uh, earthly citizenship over uh, our heavenly citizenship, where we're already seated with Jesus in the heavenly realm. And like Paul, uh, we as well are ambassadors in chains. Amen. In the next episode, we'll be continuing to look at worship, and we will be looking specifically at John chapter 4, verse 4 through 44, and Jesus' encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, Is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time. Thank you.